Good morning, and good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. I'm so pleased to be with you, and I thank all of you who were um, so kind and supportive of me. And I look forward to giving you top-notch information here on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. We're here to please you, the listening audience, but also to inspire, to inform and if we can motivate you in certain ways, I believe in activism, in all ways activism, activism of the mind, of the spirit, of the heart, and around artistic activism. We're going to get to that just a little bit later. There are this day over 555,000 deaths due to COVID, directly or indirectly, I would say. Yet 18.8% of our population has been vaccinated, but there are still climbing numbers, over 30 million cases so far. The numbers continue to climb because people want to go out into the sun and they want to to speak and, and eat and enjoy the company of others. Of course, that's very human, but you're also contributing to the downfall of others and possibly yourself. By rushing this, as the sun comes out in the spring and we go into summer, it's not time yet. It's not time. There's a season for everything. And right now, this is still a season to be careful, to be protective of yourself and others. So I hope that not only will you wear a mask, but you will also take into consideration that if you go out and you decide to go out somewhere to enjoy time with friends, and then you find it easier to communicate, and it is, by pulling your mask down, you've defeated the whole purpose. Just having it hanging around your chin is not protecting you from anything. So we need to consider not just that um, the mask is there to be worn, but to be worn across your nose and mouth. And each time you pull it down, you are putting yourself in danger as well as others. I've had a chance over this time to um, discuss the Derek Chauvin trial on media, and I haven't had a chance to discuss it with you. So let me just give you a couple of my insights. We had the bombshell testimony of Chief of Police Arredondo, and he basically said, um, having worked his way up um, through the police department and now becoming um, the chief of police, that he's familiar with the policy, that their motto is protect with courage, serve with compassion, that they have training given to officers, training that Officer Derek Chauvin had. Um, he had this training when he was leading three recruits. That's what was taking place on May 25th. He was leading three recruits showing them how to terrorize the black community by finding someone, and they always go for the biggest one, the one they feel is the leader, and crushing that person. And in doing so, they're showing everyone else. So if we can crush this person, they've been doing this since slavery, if we can crush this person, then of course we can crush you and everyone else will fall in line. Well, they decided, Derek Chauvin did, and showing his three recruits, one of whom had only been out of the academy for 48 hours, showing them how to terrorize the black community by terrorizing George Floyd. And uh, this testimony given first by the um, 
the doctor who tried to save George Floyd's life at the medical center and said that he died of asphyxiation. And then um, the chief of police who was uh, questioned by the prosecutor and said that there was absolutely nothing that Derek Chauvin did that was within the policy, that he absolutely violated the policy of the Minneapolis Police Department, that it was not part of his training to do what he had done, that once a person is in handcuffs and prone and they are so-called no longer resisting, which is a whole other aspect of this we need to get to in another time, um, then that's when the pressure is supposed to be taken off, taken off of the person. And the, everything that Derek Chauvin did after that was basically absolutely a violation of their policy. And so this is the first time, you may know of another time, I don't, where we have a police chief of the police department where the police officer has finally been charged and is in a trial to have that police chief say that this police officer violated the policy. Because we know too often, 99.9% of the time, that there are in the rare case when there is a trial, that this blue wall of silence means that even those people who know these police officers have violated the policy say nothing. And that's what's undermining even the good cops because they sit back and they allow the bad cops to taint everyone. And then they want to just stay quiet and say, well, who else are you going to call when you're in trouble? Of course, we're forced to call the police when we're in trouble or call no one at all. And basically, I don't call anyone. I don't know about you, but I stopped calling the police for things that I would normally have called them for a long time ago. I don't trust what they're going to do when they arrive. And that's unfortunate, but that's just the reality of a lot of lives. And we don't know what police officers, what police officer we're going to get, officer friendly or officer deadly. We have no idea. And so many people just don't call them. They try to handle it themselves. So we're paying taxes into a system we can't even use. That's a whole other conversation that we need to have. We need to have the conversation, as I had in the last uh, show, if you were here, um, when I'm asking these prosecutors who are running for Manhattan DA, um, do you believe in national criminal justice reform? Lucy Lang said no, she did not. So we're going to continue to ask. We're going to continue to find the platforms of these people who are running for DA for Manhattan, one of the most, if not the most, powerful prosecutor's office in the nation. What are they thinking as far as their vision for the office? What are they bringing to the office? I think these are questions we need to ask of any politician, but of course of the prosecutor's office, because they have prosecutorial discretion. They can decide if they're going to bring charges or not. They have that kind of power. What type of charge they're going to bring. And of course, in a lot of cases, it's pretty cut and dry, but we're still dealing with human lives. And that discretion means that they could say, I don't want to ruin the life of this young person just because they made a mistake. Or they can say, no, you're going to sit in Rikers for a book bag you allegedly stole because you cannot afford $500 bail as in Khalif Browder, who committed suicide after that horrific time at Rikers. So when we talk about a prosecutor's office, we're talking about a great deal of power. We need to know who these people are. They're government employees. They're protected by their government jobs. They're in unions. 
And and I'm a union person. I, I really am. But these police unions, these other unions, yes, it's great to have a union protecting you, but protecting you from what? And that's why so much has happened that the debate around qualified immunity, whether or not these government um, employees should receive qualified immunity, means that they're protecting. They were protected from personal liability. If there had been a case brought, then they would say, oh, you can't sue the individual. You can only sue the city. So our tax money is going into hundreds of millions of dollars in in damages given to people who have been harmed by government employees, harmed intentionally or unintentionally, by neglect or, or otherwise. But that money is going out. So now with qualified immunity removed, that means that that individual is also personally liable as well as the city or even the state. It all depends on the type of case. So we are going to continue, uh, if you have the chance to, um, watch the George Floyd trial. It is um, difficult to watch. It's difficult for me to watch, but I continue to do so because I think it's necessary. It's necessary for us to understand that there are uh, three charges, and we call the George Floyd trial because George Floyd's ability to have justice is actually on trial. Derek Chauvin is the defendant here, but uh, the American criminal justice system is on trial. There's already been a $27 million settlement, which is unusual, but we saw that in the Breonna Taylor case. Um, we need to understand that they're going to try to bring in the fact that um, George Floyd had, in, had uh, some substance in his system, and they tried, the defense did, tried to, to say that that substance killed um, or led to the death because the, the standard is was the knee on the neck a substantial factor in the death of George Floyd? Substantial factor. That is what has to be determined. We have three charges, second-degree murder, third-degree manslaughter, and third-degree murder. So we need to know that substantial causal factor is what you're looking for. Um, having the um, doctor testify at the time that that you know, it was the lack of oxygen that caused the heart failure. Uh, we need to know that his weight is whether or not he's had anything to drink or had any drugs. Would he still be alive even having those things in his system? Or were those things leading up to um, his death? As in Eric Garner, when they said, oh, you know, well, he had asthma. Yeah, he had asthma. And so if you choke someone, I think the asthma could have been a situation that he had even after that day, had he not been choked by the officer. We Some of this stuff just from the sublime to the absolutely ridiculous but we see what we've been dealing with in the 21st century in a system of criminal justice that started as slave catchers, as well as militia to put down Native American uprisings, and went into Night Riders, into what we have now. We've not had race-based criminal justice reform in the history of this country. These incremental things are not enough. We can't say there's a great prosecutor in Philadelphia. We have someone working in Austin, Texas. That's not enough. We have 18,000, 18,000 police districts around the country, police jurisdictions. So that means we have a number uh, around that uh, 18,000 of prosecutors' offices. We can't go piecemeal with 18,000. What, what are you talking about? So then each one who comes into office and once they leave office, 
the next person can come in and change everything again. We have to have national criminal justice reform. And as we continue to see these cases and hopefully have a, another police chief somewhere in the United States who decides to do the right thing, we can't wait for that. We have to have something coming from the federal government. And the George Floyd um, legislation was passed in the House. It's stuck in the Senate. And we'll continue to follow that legislation as well. But on the same note, when we're talking about George Floyd, as an artist, since the activist, lawyer in me, educator, could not get the justice I feel that is needed in cases like this, I decided that I'd write a play and that my play would speak to this harm, to speak to this, this issue. Um, but I wanted it to speak to the, the longevity of it. And I write um, generationally. I like to see and explore how one generation affects the next, how something that happens in, say, our grandparents' time, ex you know, actually explodes in ways that affect our lives. And, and then we, in acting and reacting, um, then do something that will affect our children and our grandchildren. That generational drama is so very important to me and it's so interesting for my my work as an artist and so my play dreams of Emmett Till that's my new play is having its world premiere on April 8th this Thursday I'm so nervous about it um, but I would like to play up about 10 minutes of it um, it does contain some language it really does but none of those words we're not supposed to use it does not contain any of those FCC forbidden words the, the George Carlin words that we're not supposed to use but if you don't mind I would like to play for you um, about 10 minutes of dreams of Emmett Till and I, I set it up this way this 1955 murder of 14 year old Emmett Till Emmett Till, a little black boy from Chicago, was visiting his uncle in Money, Mississippi, a very small town, racist, segregated Mississippi. Uh, this is 1955. After Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, there was this backlash of just horrific racial incidents and hatred based on that 1954 um, Brown decision that desegregated the public schools. And so the white citizens councils, Ku Klux Klan, that's when you saw this uptick of these monuments being put around of all these Confederate soldiers and all of this. And so we have this little boy, Emmett Till. Emmett since is being sent down to Mississippi to visit his uncle, his cousins. And that's something that we did in the black community and still do. We send, you know, people back and forth. As you know, you go back to the Caribbean to make sure you stay connected with your family there, back to Africa, Europe, other places, Israel, you know, just to make sure you maintain that family connection of the next generation. Mamie Till, his mother, sent Emmett down to visit his relatives in Mississippi. And there was at one point some conversation that took place between Emmett Till and Carolyn Bryant, a white woman, in a store, a country store, in Money, Mississippi. No one knows exactly what happened in that store, but we do know that she told her husband that he did something, Emmett, 14, she's 21, white woman, and a few days later, Emmett is taken from his home at, at, with his uncle, by two white men, one of whom um, was Carolyn Bryant's husband, 
Roy Bryant Sr. and his half-brother, J.W. J.W. Milam, M-I-L-A-M. And they took that little boy in the middle of the night. They did horrific things to him. They threw his body weighted down into the Tallahatchie River. And that was in August of 1955. My play then picks up in recent times. We have that elderly Carolyn Bryant talking to her son, Roy Bryant Jr. Because what happens next is that Carolyn Bryant, the older woman now, has raised this issue. It's in the news again. And some of you might recall that it was in the news again. I'll pick it up right there and let you hear um, this excerpt from my new play that will have its world premiere on April 8th. And uh, it's free. It's virtual Eventbrite. If you go to Eventbrite and put in my name or put in Dreams of Emmett Till, you'll find it and you'll be able to uh, actually register for it. Um, I would like for you to hear um, Dreams of Emmett Till in excerpt. I'll be right back after this, after you hear it. Mom! Mother! Mom! Did you, did you see this? Just in time for my afternoon lemonade. A little reminder of Mississippi. Oh, hot days back then. Maybe I don't need to remember. <laughs> they, they say you recanted. That it was all a lie. You never, you never said those things. You're talking too fast, son. Have a seat. Recanted. I'm not deaf. Just speak slower. The the, the reporter you let you let in here. The reporter last year. It was, it was a few months ago, mother. He 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 said you recanted. What month? You recanted, lied that you that you lied, lied, recanted. What are you saying, son? Good God, that, that, you, that you never told the truth about that boy. What boy? I refuse to call his name. You are talking in circles. Who said? That, 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 that you lied about all of it. The reporter who was here. Oh, God, I, I told you not to speak to him. God knows you, you can't listen to me, can you? About the boy? Don't play stupid, mother. He wrote right here, right here, that, that, that Carolyn Bryant told me it never happened. God, it never happened? Jesus Christ! I will not have you talk to me in that tone. Call me names. Take the Lord in vain. No one ever again will call me names in my own house. I won't have it. The reporter that you allowed to interview you said you lied about the entire incident. The reporter? Yes! Oh, God, I should have been here. I should have been the one with you, not Maylene. 
that twit. You are full of vinegar today. Your wife, Maylene, is a, a twit. I should have never allowed her to oh. be kind. I am being kind. It's not like I married Maylene for her brains. Oh, Junior, stop it. Maylene is a wonderful woman. I should have never allowed her to, to be here with, with this reporter. <laughs> you and Maylene? Good God! Reporters are sneaky and underhanded cowards of the pen, mother. She's not intellectually equipped. Is that better? Why must men insist on using such disparaging terms toward their wives? Your father was... Was a murderer. How dare you? If you recanted, then my father, your husband, was just a cold-blooded redneck. A murderer. That's what these New York bastards are going to say on their liberal networks. I told the truth. Which time? I remember back when you first told Dad. He already knew. There's a lot about what happened that that I... Until now? 50 years? You wait 50 years! Your father never asked me. This is about more than you and Dad. Me and Lamar. I mean, we've had to live with, with, with... With all this, I told the truth. The world is going to hate you. They won't understand. Hate me? (laughs) Again? I'll take care of this. Yeah, no one is coming through that door. No one. It's hot as hell in here. Well, son, have some lemonade. It's time maybe we moved again. I don't need the damn lemonade. And I'm not running, running from them damn hyenas. We left Mississippi, went to Alabama, came all the way to North Carolina. How the hell did he find us? Who did you tell? I'm trying to remember. Zeke, Mom, at the trial, you said he, the boy said. Don't talk about that, the incident. We got to talk about it. We got, we got to talk about the story you told. Story? My testimony. But it was found inadmissible, Mom. The judge said it was not allowed in court. Struck down. My my father didn't testify. My father didn't testify. Dad didn't testify. And neither did Uncle J.W. I mean, the reporter said... Listen to me. Oh, God, the trial. I I was a kid, and I I still remember it. Colored men coming from as far away as New York City. Why don't men listen? All those people coming just to see you. Well, the reporter didn't get you on tape. Thank God for small favors. This bastard, what's his name, did not record you saying that it never happened. 
I was worth seeing back then, worth the trip. <laughs> Even your father thought so. That's not why they came, Mother. You never gave interviews, not back then, not, not for 50 years. You told Daddy and the judge that was it until now. Well, what on earth possessed you to start? Your father. I wasn't the one who told him. About the incident? He knew. Well, everybody in Tallahatchie County knew. He said word got out. He knew before I told him. That night, by the time I saw him that night, your father already knew. Uh, but, but, Mom, it was only you and that boy in the store. I'm not feeling well. He knew. I went home. He came in red-faced. Your father's face would get beat red when he drank or when that temper got the best of him. Maybe the boy told someone. Fool. My cousins were waiting for me outside on the road. That night. Oh, so long ago. 1955. 1955. You always said that you and that boy were the, were the only ones in the store. Tell him. So angry. Yeah, he, he was angry, this boy. You, you had your back to the door, and that monster, an angry monster, grabs you. Tell him what happened. I was putting up jars of pickles. Mrs. Greenwood, he's made them, huh? Best I ever tasted. Um, my back was turned. And he attacked you, angry. He was angry. Roy was angry. Uh, Roy was beat red angry. Because the boy attacked you. Think, mother, you, you got to tell the story straight. This was national news. Carol and Bryant recants. National news, mother. Before that, but before the, the incident, Roy come home drunk again. He and J.W. been out carousing 50 years ago. Dad is dead. I don't want to hear about Dad and Uncle J.W. carousing 70 years ago. And so that was an excerpt from Dreams of Emmett Till, my new play with the world premiere on April 8th, Thursday. It's available on Eventbrite. It's free, but you have to have registration. It goes to this issue, as you heard, Carolyn Bryant from 1955, who said something happened between her and Emmett Till in that store. Well, I took that, and I took the fact that um, in the last two years, she recanted. She claimed she re someone claimed she recanted. I'll put it that way, allegedly recanted, allegedly. And I decided to connect that generationally to the son, Roy Jr. What is his life like? What is Carolyn now, an older woman? Um, what is her, her emotional life like as the guilt is um, eating at her or is she able to withstand it? What, what is it that 
is felt by the Karens of the world and Central Park Karen, for example, um, and the name Karen is now synonymous with women who call the police and the police like pit bulls rush to their aid and what they feel is the protecting of the honor of these white women, that they know how to say certain things at certain times that will cause these men, uh, whether or not the police or, or their husbands or people in the neighborhood, politicians, to, to rush to their side, to, to protect their honor against the encroaching uh, male of color. In this instance, it's Emmett Till, 14 years old, who wanders into Carolyn Bryant's store that day in Mississippi that created international, international acrimony around the use and abuse of terrorism by whites against even a little boy claiming that he attacked her in that store. And attacked her is what she says happened back in 1955. And then years later, she says nothing happened and then recants saying nothing happens. So she recants the <laughs> recant. That's the basis of my play, Dreams of Emmett Till. We have Emmett actually confront Carolyn Bryant around this lie that was told or accusation. We'll find out in the play exactly from my perspective what Carolyn Bryant did back then in 1955 and how she lives with it today. That's what my play is about, Dreams of Emmett Till. And so far, there have been over 500 RSVPs. So I hope you'll be one of the people in the group able to not only see Dreams of Emmett Till, it's going to be a virtual play with all of these amazing production values that the director has brought to it, but also a town hall Q&A afterwards. So have your questions ready um, for April 8th, Thursday, Dreams of Emmett Till. I want to move to our musical break. And um, if we have time, and we do, open the phone lines. Yes, we're going to open the phone lines. And so that's 212-209-2877. We're going to open those phone lines and have you um, tell us about um, not just what's going on with um, the issues of uh, George Floyd and how you feel about the George Floyd trial. And that's, uh, as I said, the reason me behind um, my play, Dreams of Emmett Till, is the connection between the vulnerability of black life that can be taken so easily, and yet justice is so difficult to get afterwards, as we're still seeking justice for Emmett Till and all the Emmett Tills of the world, not just African American, but all of the Emmett Tills of the world. But I'm opening those phone lines for you to give us a call at 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. We're going to have a musical break, and then after that musical break, I want to talk with you, 212-209-2877. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We'll be right back after this. Southern trees 
This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Thank you for listening to my Dreams of Emmett Till play excerpt. It's April 8th, Thursday. It's a world premiere, and it's followed by a town hall. I've opened the phone lines, 212-209-2877, to talk about the George Floyd trial. My Dreams of Emmett Till play is an artistic response to the killing of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd before our very eyes caught on video. Um, but there are ways in which George Floyd's trial or your perspective on it, I think, it also needs to be discussed. So please, if you want to discuss the George Floyd trial, please give us a call at 212-209-2877. Looking forward to hearing from you. I think we have a listener Hello, good morning. You're on Law of the Land. Good morning, uh, Gloria J. Brown Marshall, long-time listener, first-time caller. My name is Avery in Delaware by way of New York. I uh, moved here when I retired. Anyway, i got a couple of things. I'm going to make it short as possible. Uh-huh. One is that I'm struggling with what's obvious 
to everybody. You're looking right at it. How is it that four grown men cannot place a handcuffed man with his hands behind his back in the back seat of the car, which he was, hold him in place and put his seatbelt on? How hard could that be? That's one. The other thing is, and I want you, uh, this is more like a question. I want you to discuss it as an attorney. My understanding is that there's a difference between a ban and codified law saying that any kind of neck restraint is a criminal offense, felony, illegal, and you will be prosecuted and go to jail for it. There's a difference between that and a ban, and people need to be careful about these bans on chokeholds because a ban is something that, if I'm understanding it right, can be worked around and walked away from every time. And thank you, and I'll listen on the air. Okay. Uh, that's it's very interesting because when Arredondo was Arredondo, I should say, was was testifying, he was using these words reasonable or an officer should and there's there's a difference between an officer must, shall, will, may or try to find. Those are different standards in in many ways, and shall and must are pretty much the same. But when you get to an officer um, should decide or must decide, that word decide means they're making their own um, subjective decision at the spot. And and, and on the spot, and what I think is so important, and I say this quite often, I say it in my classes, and I'll say it to you, I believe that policing is very subjective. It it deals with judgment, and police officers don't just walk up one day and say, I want to be a cop. They actually have to go through a long process, and that process, they they don't take a class of officers every year in most places. Um, Then they they go through a a test, and then they have a psychological, they have um, interviewing, they, they do all these things, trying to weed out the people with poor judgment, trying to figure out who's trainable and who can actually follow the rules. But there, you know, is a, is a certain mindset that's within the policing of itself that I think lends itself too often to uh, people who can be drawn into the power of it, the power of carrying a gun, the power of, that they can stop you and say, you will stand here until I say you don't. You will get in this car. I can put you face down on the ground and you must stay there. That you have to turn your back to me in the most vulnerable position of any living thing is to have their back to someone and to have your back to someone and that someone has a gun and you don't know them. That we've given them through this country, through law, through the Supreme Court, the power to touch us, to rub their hands on us and and then decide through um, reasonable suspicion of that you could or have a possible um, weapon that could cause deadly force. Uh, I, I really think that we have taken the, the um, position of law enforcement, lifted it up beyond any other government employee, because that's what law enforcement is. They are government workers, government employees. My parents were government employees, and we've taken them and we've elevated them to some celebrity status that's made them almost untouchable. We have created this monster, 
And we have to do something about it because this celebrity status for a government job is beyond our ability to control. And now the unions are are making it even more like Teflon dons um, when it comes to the police department. And, And I know this is a job and they have their own issues inside of the job. But I know from the outside of the job, from the from the from the bystander civilians, whether or not it's a ban or whether or not it's prohibited altogether. Um, human beings know they can't kill people. So the fact that police officers kill over or people die at the hands of police um, every year, there are over a thousand people who die at the hands of police every year. And that's because we've only started counting. We don't know how many people were dying before this and that they're the handful of trials Um, The the prosecutors who refuse to prosecute, refuse to do their jobs. If civilians did the same thing that these police officers are doing, they know those civilians would be indicted. They would be facing accountability, criminal consequences. And and prosecutors work hand in glove with police officers and then turn their back on what they see day to day that police officers are doing. This is so ridiculous as far as um, any type of democracy, but as far as a country that claims it's about law and order and it's it's undermined it at every every turn in our criminal justice system or criminal injustice system there's got to be something i don't i don't want it to be it can't be perfect but it can be a heck of a lot better than this um so i'll go to my next caller and my next caller you're on law of the land good morning how are you doing hey good morning gloria and uh congratulations on your play that's that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Sure. Um, I wanted to comment, uh, just pass along a comment I heard yesterday on BAI on law and disorder. So Michael um, Tiger, T-I-G-A-R, who just wrote his memoir called Sensing Justice. He's an attorney, for a social justice attorney. And he was saying he, he wishes that the... Um, prosecution would would come out and say, hey, I'm a racist, you're a racist, we're all racist, um, that, that that would be an important thing. It's like Clarence Darrow used it back in the day. And I, I don't know how that would play with um, a, t- today's jury in Minnesota. I don't know. Uh, I wonder if that would help or hurt. That's one thing. But and just another comment is, is that I just watched a little bit of the trial. It's really difficult to watch, um, I'm sure, for so many people. But so the defense attorney was uh, going with the point about the bystanders, that one way to – he used the phrase escalate to de-escalate, right? Mm-hmm. Me. So in order to control the bystanders as if they were a threat, that and that I hope comes out in the trial that the bystanders were not seeming to pose a threat whatsoever to the officers, you know, so that argument is, goes down the toilet. Um, but, but that is an argument that he's going to make that as if he has to, like, show that I will hurt you because I'm hurting this man so I, will, so I can control you, uh, you know, but that me is an empty argument in this case but i don't know really what the total scene was before just like bits and pieces so have at it <laughs> those comments uh, <laughs> what do you well, think about thank those comments you. well um 
I I would have to hear what was said uh, from Mr. Tiger. Um, I wasn't sure exactly the context for that. I'm familiar with Clarence Darrell. I I, I know that people um, sometimes will say, if we're all this, then you know, let's move on from there because that way we can close the door on the subject by everybody admitting that we all have these biases and prejudices. Um, but I I think that. Um, they decided early on as uh, part of the prosecutor's strategy not to go down a racial road and to make this all about what happened, just the facts, ma'am, uh, what happened on that day, what was supposed to be the policy, what was not followed as policy, what a reasonable officer should have done, and whether or not um, the practice that, of putting the knee on the neck was something that, that um, Derek Chauvin was trained to do and he was following orders, which, of course, goes back to World War II and Nazi Germany. I was just following orders. But now we have the chief of police, Arredondo, saying that's that's not even the policy. So you weren't even following our policy. You're lying. Um, so that's going to be interesting what the defense counsel brings out as far as um, is there a policy? Is there some type of hidden smoking gun that shows this was the policy that Derek Chauvin was trained under, but they changed the policy later? And so the chief of police would be seen as a liar and that he's just covering up for his department and his own failures. That would be one strategy from the defense counsel if they were attempting to do it that way. Um, mm. But, yeah, but I but I'm basically concerned um, that I, I've seen great arguments being made by uh, people. Uh, the, the, but it comes down to the jury and Walter Scott. And we, we saw Walter Scott be shot in the back on video by a white police officer. Uh, Walter Scott, a black man running away, shot in the back from 15 to 20 feet away by this officer and then have a weapon planted on him, Walter Scott, and was the officer was acquitted. Why? Because a white woman on the jury said she had no intention of, of ever finding him guilty. She she pretended like she could be unbiased so she can get on the jury to find him not guilty. Um, so and you can't retry the case just because, you know, you find this out later. You don't, you know, give this uh, defendant another criminal trial because one of the um, uh, jurors had this scheme. Um but this is very difficult, even with the best uh, arguments, to get a jury to take the gloss off of the actions of a police officer and see their see their um, crime. So we'll see what happens. We have another caller on the line, and um, this is I, I, my listeners are the best listeners. That's what I I say to everybody. Uh, so our Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. We have a listener, and good morning. Well, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, it's very hard to watch that trial. Um, I will say, though, it's a lot it's, it's a lot better to me, this particular trial and the way it's going, than the Amadou Diallo case, which by yes. the time Robert Johnson let it slip right out of his hands and let Giuliani and them take it over to Westchester County, we all know what happened there. And, you know, so I, I watched this, and, and like everyone else, and you know, these police, what angers me so much when I watch that tape, is that what they needed, I always thought, was an experienced officer, but someone who would have looked down, saw this idiot 
riding on this man's neck and would have, if not used his hand, would have taken his foot and shoved him off. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if he was in the zone or what, but he and he can say whatever he wants to say. It looked like he did not care. It was, I'm going to, you know, go ahead, girl, take my picture. I'm going to stand, mm-hmm. you know, I'm. this is his place. His place is, you know, you respect, as I heard a cop say one time to me many years ago when I was a kid, pretty much, you know, when I, you know, you don't respect the police. And to me, it always came off as you don't respect a white man. And that was what I saw when I look at that film and I see him on that man's neck. I see I'm going to teach you how to respect me. And watching the crowd, my whole, I remember it, and I'm sure you do too, that senator or whoever he was who turned around and said that the crowd that attacked the Capitol didn't frighten me. But Black Lives Matter frightens me. So uh, anyway, I know you have other callers. I thought I'd leave oh. it at that. Thank you. That was that was so deep, and it's and it's so true. We're watching thousands of people attack our capital, and you know, uh, I, I I go back to the Dahl test in Brown versus Board of Education. If you have a chance to go online on YouTube and just watch an excerpt from the Dahl test, and I look at it and I say, okay, if you take little children of color, especially little African American children, but children of color. You give them a doll, you ask them which doll is good, which doll is bad, which doll is smart, which doll is you, which doll is good, they choose the white doll, which doll is bad, they choose the black doll, which doll is smart, they choose the white doll, which doll is you, and they choose the black doll. I think, what if you did that with white children, and now those white children choosing the bad doll is the black doll, grow up into positions of power with this sense as a child into adulthood that black is bad. And you see this all the time. I'm tired of everybody using the word dark to, to, to indicate any difficulty, any hard time, anything that's, that's bad. Oh, these are dark days. This is dark times. This is dark, dark, dark. And there's all this stuff about negativity being black. And it's like maybe that's what happens in European countries. You know, something that's that's negative or bad is black in, in African countries. I know when I was in Nigeria, um, a, a, a dead person or an evil person is white. So maybe it comes down to that. You know, I don't know. But what I do know is that. Um, if you grow up in this country or any country, but this country in particular, and you from childhood believe that brown is bad and scary and spooky and can attack you and do horrible things to you, even though we see these white men as terrorists, these white men as, as mass murderers, as pedophiles, as all these things you see these white men doing, um, going into Sandy Hook, killing little babies in school, white men are doing this. And yet... White men are not seen as these horrific things as a group. It, each individual, oh, that was John, that was Jeffrey, that was Mary. That's not the whole group. We can't be prejudiced against the whole group. But you do this, this society does this when it comes to people of color. 
So if a person of color commits a bad act, oh, this all black people must be bad. This is just the psychological damage here is such that you put that person with that mindset in a police force and give them a weapon and you give them power. And I believe Jarek Chauvin was terrorizing the black community, had been terrorizing the black community for decades, and that he was training those young recruits how to terrorize black people. That's what he was doing with George Floyd. So uh, I, I, I just find it just uh, despicable. And it's, it is difficult to watch the trial. And, and I watch it because it's part of what I do in covering the trial. But I think it's very difficult. So at, at this point, um, we have come to the, the end of our program. And there's so much more we could say. Um, just trying to figure out where we go next as a community. As Martin Luther King said, is it chaos or community? Where are we going after this? Chaos or community? We've got to figure this out. And we've got to not be afraid of our past. It's difficult for us to, to have to face it. But as with Emmett Till in 1955, there is is no other way to go except forward unless we refuse to know about the past. Our last caller, caller, are you there? Very quickly for the George Floyd trial, very quickly. Hello, caller. Yes, I'm here. Very quickly. Yes, good morning. First, first, first and foremost, thank you for taking my call. And I'd like, to, I'd like to also state that I am a retired police officer in New York City. And here, here, here's, here's what the problem is. The problem is if, they, if this boy, this cop, was a problem cop, why in the hell was he trying to train with you as a training officer? He going to take mm. his venom out to, in, in, towards these young training officers, on these young training officers. That's how he was training them. Now, let me say this also while I'm... Speaking in, in a hurry, uh, as a black retired police officer, here's what you, here's what the situation is. Until black cops start to take a damn stand, you understand what I'm saying? Take a stand, mm-hmm. uh, like men and not like little boys, and stand up against these things. Uh, these white cops would not do these things because they know you 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 watching them. They're not going to tolerate. They're not going to tolerate you doing the same thing in their community to their white people. And, and we stand around, and we allow them to do it. Our, well, you know, it's them and us. But they say use the word them and us. They talk about black people versus the cops, cops versus the black people. They're not talking about white folk. You see, let me let me say this. And once I say this, everybody will know who the hell I am. I happen to be the 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 the, uh, the retired uh, 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 guardian chaplain of the black police officer in New York City. Now everybody knows who the hell I am. They knew I didn't tolerate it. Number one, number one, the problem young black cops make, they go into too damn much debt. So when they threaten them with their job, you, they can't fire them, but they can suspend them long enough that they will lose their home, their cars, or whatever else. They'll get their money eventually because when they, uh, when they, when they suspend you. I've been suspended. I've been suspended, but you know what? I did not go down that path where I could not afford to feed my family if they suspended me. I wasn't going to give up my my principles and what's my righteousness and what was right for a dollar. I wasn't going to do it. 
And so as a result, I wasn't like, but you know what? I was respected. When something went wrong and they were doing wrong, and I sh- if I walked up, they ceased. And that's how it should be. Until these black cops stand up like men instead of little boys, you will still have these George Floyd cases. Thank you so much. And that is the last word on Law of the Land. As I said, this is a powerful show, a powerful statement. So much was said there. Why was Derek Chauvin even training anyone with all these complaints against him? That is amazing. Thank you for bringing that out. And, of course, we've said before, you can't put good cops into a corrupt system and expect them to stay untainted unless they are very strong. And as this listener pointed out, you've got to be very strong in a system of such corruption. Time to go. We have to wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening to Law of the Land. And I appreciate you. And I hope you've been able to be empowered, informed, and and motivated. Yes, this this is a tough time. And these are tough situations. But we're strong and we can handle it. You know we can handle it. We've got everything it takes. We'll just stick together. We'll get through this. And until next time, I thank you, Michael Chi. And I'll see you, all of you, everyone, even you over here on the radio.